Heavenly Father, that is the prayer that we wish. We wish to see Christ. We wish to see Him in all His glory, His beauty, and His majesty. O Lord, open up every heart here. Move by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would speak into every life, whoever we are, however long we, it has been since we have walked through the doors of this building. O Lord, speak by the power of Your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do please take uh, your seats and uh, keep your Bibles open on that passage uh, <coughs> that uh, Catherine heard, had read out to us uh, earlier from Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, that's found on page uh, 1182 of the Church Bible. Uh, please do not be worried that I've come up with this big folder. This is not my sermon. It's a prop for later, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. Well, I've entitled uh, today's sermon, In Light of the uh, Coronation, Fit for a King. And the first thing I'd like us to look at is recognizing our great King. Now, I wonder how many of you actually watched yesterday's coronation on the television? A few of you, perhaps a few, not uh, so sure. You maybe watch it later. Anyone have a street party? One brave person, well done, Helen, for you. And did, has anybody tried coronation quiche yet? I have. Coronation quiche? I can recommend it. Yeah? Yep, a few nods. We can really highly recommend it. Well, either way, I must admit, when it comes to pageantry, pomp, and ceremony, the British know how to do it in style, don't we? Every one of the soldiers on foot or on horseback looked immaculate. There were 6,000 brand new uniforms that had been especially made and tailored and reembossed with King Charles's cipher. Every inch of their uniforms were pressed and polished to the highest standard. Everything was glistening and gleaming. It was breathtaking. It had to be. It had to be fit enough for a king. The streets lining the route had been swept spotlessly clean. Every lamppost repainted and topped with crowns. Everything meticulous. And then there were the crowds of people celebrating, and I don't know if anybody managed to spot Joel, who was playing drums. He was there and dropped a little pin so we could see where he was on the mall. Even my feet dressed up for the occasion, <laughs> as Vicky bought me some coronation socks, which cost, yes, a few pounds. Ah, but compare that with King Charles. For by the time King Charles had been given the gold orb and the royal scepter, which contains the world's largest diamond, the Star of Africa, which alone is worth 400 million pounds just for the diamond. And when he was crowned with the 900-year-old St. Edward's crown, he was walking around wearing one billion pounds worth of gold, jewelry, and clothes. 
That's mind-blowing. That is a wow. All of this pomp and ceremony to acknowledge our new king. That's why all the crowds gathered. They wanted to catch a glimpse of their sovereign in all of his splendor. Ah, but I wonder how many people caught a glimpse of an even greater sovereign and acknowledged him on that day. For an even greater king was mentioned throughout the whole of the service yesterday. Prime Minister Richie Sunak read the following words from the Bible, which we heard read earlier, from Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You know, people sometimes ask, how can we know God? Or how can I believe in somebody that I can't see? Here is the answer. Because Jesus reveals God to us. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, I don't think I've ever told any of you this before, but a number of years ago, I had my picture taken standing right next to the Queen, to Prince Philip, and the whole rest of the royal family Perhaps you didn't realize that I was myself so well-connected. Ah, but I did have to pay a pricely sum for that privilege. In fact, it was £12.50 to enter Madame Tussauds Waxwork Museum back in the 1980s. And I was pictured alongside the royal family, as were thousands of other tourists. A waxwork is a full-sized image of the real person, but of course, it's only an imitation of the real thing. Now, we use that term image to refer to a copy of the original, like it in appearance, but different from it in substance, and therefore inferior and not nearly as valuable. But when this passage says that Jesus is the image of God, don't think of Jesus as being an inferior imitation of God, like the waxworks, which only captures the appearance of someone, but doesn't capture the someone itself. But rather, because Jesus belongs to to the very identity of God, He is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is inextricably of the same substance and character and nature as God the Father. As the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald, Angel Sings, puts it, He is God of God, light of light. He's not simply a good imitation of God, but rather he is fully God in flesh. 
For the Bible goes on to say in Colossians 2 verse 10, for in Christ the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Not 99%, but the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And that's why Jesus could once say to his disciples in John 14 verse 9, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, not only in who he is, but also in what he does. He does the kind of things that only God could do. For example, Jesus is described in the Bible as being the person who creates and sustains the whole universe. Jesus is the Savior of His people. Jesus alone can forgive sins, something reserved solely for God. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, what did His disciples do? They worshipped Him. That is something reserved solely and exclusively to God alone. You know, when the queen died, as heir to the throne, Prince Charles received all that the Queen Elizabeth had power and dominion over, her position, her titles, her privileges, her wealth, all of it would be confirmed onto him. Well, Jesus holds all the powers and the titles that we would ever associate with God. He has the name that is above every other name, and to which one day every knee will one day bow. He is heir of all things. Whatever belongs to God the Father belongs to God the Son. He is first in rank, in inheritance, in absolutely everything. No one is greater than him. It's a phenomenal statement. And Paul tells us why Jesus holds that supreme position. It's because Jesus is the creator. It says in our passage, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. You know this, the whole meaning of life is summed up there in that one sentence. All things were created by Him, Jesus, and for Him, Jesus. Jesus is not only the agent of creation, He's the very purpose for it. So, if you have ever asked that question, why on earth am I here on this planet? The true answer is for Him. That's why you were made, for Him. A few years ago, King Charles spoke of his belief that despite all the advances of science, there remains deep in the soul a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing some ingredient that makes life worth living. That secret of the universe is not found in an equation, friends, but in a person, Jesus Christ. That person has entered our world and joined himself to our human race. 
He came to rescue us. He came so that we might be reconciled to God. And we will feel empty without him. As Saint Augustine said, You, O God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And no amount of wealth or material things can ever replace him. Now think of that. You and I were created by Jesus and for him. Ah, but there's a problem, isn't there? Because we as a whole human race have wandered away from God, sometimes deliberately, sometimes out of ignorance, and in other times by our sheer shrug and indifference to his existence. And in our current state, we are utterly unfit to stand in the holy presence of God. And so we need to recognize our great need. Back in 2012, the Queen came to Nottingham, along with Prince William and Kate. And there was much excitement in the city. Around about six o'clock in the evening, before her visit the next day, we received a phone call from the headmaster of my son's school. He said, I'm calling you about your son, James. Well, you could imagine our hearts sank, thinking, oh no, what's he done now? But he continued. Uh, the Queen's helicopter is using our playing field, and one pupil has been asked to present her with a bouquet of flowers. It's your son. Could you imagine our excitement? We put the phone down. Ha <laughs> ha! This is wonderful. What an opportunity. Uh, but that quickly turned to dread when we looked again at James's school uniform. It looked like any normal 11 year old school uniform at the end of the week dirty, grubby, frayed at the edges, and scuffed shoes from playing football in the schoolyard. Well, you could imagine our panic as we thought, he cannot possibly be seen greeting the queen looking like that. The shops were shut. We couldn't even go out and buy fresh clothes. We just had to tidy him up as best as we could. And we spent the entire evening washing, mending, ironing his clothes, polishing his shoes, just so he could meet his sovereign. But one additional instruction was given to us that James was not permitted to shake the queen's hand, unless, of course, it was offered to him. Well, the next day, as James presented this bouquet of flowers to Her Majesty, he went like this. She reached her hand to take them, and James quickly put his <laughs> hand in hers, quick as a flash. That's my boy. <laughs> Then he gave her the flowers. And I have to say, he scrubbed up pretty good on the day. But do you know this? When you know you're going to meet the king or the queen, it makes you see everything differently, doesn't it? If the king said, I'm coming round to your house, what's the first thing you're going to think of? 
get out of the service quick and get the hoover out, tidy up everything. Isn't it? Yeah? You suddenly become aware of every stain, every speck of dust, everything on your clothes, every scuff mark on your shoes. You become aware of it because you're seeing it through the eyes, not of your friends here at Cornerstone, but of your sovereign. Oh, friends, we cannot enter God's holy presence in the condition that we are in. We need someone to make us clean enough to meet our sovereign and to restore us to a right standing before Him because before Him we are filthy. And the Bible says this in our passage, once you were alienated from God, we were separated from Him, We were enemies in our minds and in our thinking because of our evil behavior. Our behavior may not seem very evil to us, but when it's compared alongside the purity and the holiness of God, then we realize how dirty we are by comparison to Him. You know, during the coronation, the moderator for the Church of Scotland presented King Charles with the Bible and said this, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The truth of the matter is, that we as a whole human race have ignored God's, God's laws. We have rejected God's wisdom. We do not walk in God's ways as found in Scripture. We do not treat God's Word as the most valuable thing in this world because we do not value God. We have all failed to love and honor God as we ought as a human race. The Bible's word for our rejection for God in this way is sin. And the Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are worthy of entering His presence. And what is more, our good deeds, however good they may be, will never be able to pay for any of our wrongdoing. So we cannot save ourselves by our own efforts. What we need is a Savior. Someone who can offer us a royal pardon and forgive us our wrongs and set us free. As Queen Elizabeth once said in her Christmas address, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, but a savior with power to forgive. And so finally, recognize our great savior. Look down at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, you may have heard that King Charles' voice has been heard on the underground saying, mind the gap. That is the gap between the train and the platform. Well, this king says, mind the gap, the king of heaven. He says, mind the gap. Because sin has isolated us from God. It created not just a gap, but a chasm. But in Christ, God has bridged that gap. He has crossed the chasm that separated us and provided a way whereby a guilty world can have their wrongs forgiven, to be reconciled to their creator. Jesus Christ hung on the cross and died for our guilt, for our shame. He is a savior from God, coming for the salvation of those who could never be what he is and never do what he has done. He is help from our, the outside. Now, as many of you may well know, this is the time of year when schools and universities have their exams. And it can be a very daunting and stressful time, can't it? But I want you to imagine that we all have to sit an exam. And that the only way that you can ever pass is if you answer one million questions correctly. If you get one question wrong, you fail. Tell me, how would you feel about sitting such an exam as that? Fearful, I would imagine. But imagine that you're sitting in the corridor, about to be called into that examination room. When someone goes past ahead of you, and they enter the room, and after some time, that same person comes out and hands you a piece of paper and says, you passed. What? You passed. You got 100%. I took the test for you. I did it. I took the test for you. I passed. I got everything right. Friends, this book, the Bible, contains the law of God. But we have broken God's law. We have failed to live the life that we ought to. The Bible says whoever keeps the whole of the law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. We have failed. But there is one who has passed. Jesus. Jesus. Here is my book of wrongs. It'd be much thicker than this. That placed on me is enough to condemn me for hell. One page, indeed one sentence, would condemn me for hell. But when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, this is what God did. He transferred all of my sin upon the sinless, spotless Son of God 
as he died on that cross for me. That in itself would have meant that I was free from my sin and could stand before a holy God. But God wanted to do far more than that. Jesus gave me his righteousness. My sin is on Christ. Christ's righteousness is on me. The most undeserving gift in the whole universe. You will never see love like this. He did that because you'd be lost without him. He did that because he loved you enough to go through the agony. How can we be made holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation? The answer is through Jesus Christ alone. During the First World War, when the, prince, the then Prince of Wales was invited to a special hospital on the outskirts of London to meet 36 of the most wounded men from the front line who were being cared for in the hospital, he agreed to pay a visit. On arrival, he was shown the main ward, where he shook hands with some and spoke kind words to many others and sympathized with them all. I thought there were 36, the Prince of Wales said, as his visit was drawing near to an end. But I've only seen 30. It was explained that six of the very worst cases of injured men were in a special side ward, not usually visited. I must see them, he said. He was guided by the doctor to a side ward and saw men bruised, burned, maimed, helpless wrecks. But there was only five. Where, was the, where is the other, he said. And it was again explained that one poor man was so badly injured that he was kept in a room all on his own. Oh, it'd be wiser not to see him. Oh, I must see him too, he said. And so he was taken into a room and saw a sight which stunned him. There lay all that was left of a brave soldier. He was blind, deaf, legless, armless, and disfigured almost beyond recognition as a human being. Moved beyond measure, the Prince of Wales stooped down and kissed the brow of the veteran. And with a trembling voice, he said, broken for me, broken for me. Oh, friends, perhaps we can understand the sacrifice such a subject might make for his king. But what do we make of a king, a king of glory, who would make such a sacrifice for us? Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, lay broken 
on a cross for you. He did so in order to purchase your freedom, to offer you forgiveness. He did so because he loved you. Friends, during the coronation yesterday, people were invited to make their pledge to their king. Well, today you have an opportunity to make a pledge to Jesus, the king of all kings, the one who sacrificed his life for you to offer you a share in his eternal kingdom. In the light of Christ's sacrifice for him, Isaac Watts penned this response, this response, were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Shall we pray? As we reflect on what we have heard, I am going to ask and invite you to make your pledge to Jesus, the Son of God who gave His life for you. Perhaps there is someone here this morning and you have never once bowed your knee sincerely to Jesus and given Him your all. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and if you're someone that knows you've walked from God for too long and need to return to Him, or someone that's never asked Christ into your life, but you know that this is the day that you need to, then I'm going to invite you to say these words in your heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I have sinned in my thoughts, my words, and my actions. There are so many good things I have not done. There are so many sinful things I have done. And I am sorry for my sins and turn from everything I know to be wrong. You gave your life upon the cross for me. And so gratefully I give my life back to you. Now I ask you to come into my life. Come in as my Savior to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. Come by your Holy Spirit. And I will serve you all the remaining years of my life in obedience to you. Amen.